0: Where are my Spanish speakers here tonight? All right, we got some over here, some over here. Yeah, I know I was talking to somebody in the women's ministry and she knew some Spanish and I was like, wow, cool. Um, so anyway, uh, we, in Spanish we have two verbs. Uh, the verb ser, which is S-E-R, and the verb estar, which is E-S-T-A-R. And so these two verbs mean the same thing. The verb ser and estar both mean to be. They both mean to be in English, obviously, and in Spanish the same way. Um, But even though they both mean to be, they're used in very different ways. They have different uh, meanings at heart. So the verb ser you use uh, for describing where somebody is from or describing who somebody is. Um, The verb estar is used to describe somebody's feelings, how somebody's feeling at the time, how you're feeling at the time, or somebody's location. And so even though these two verbs have the same meaning, which is to be, they are used in completely different ways and really have different weights in the way that you use them. You see, tonight, as we get into the book of Malachi, we're going to see that they're going, going to ask a bunch of questions. They're going to, there's a total of seven questions that make up the structure of the book of Malachi. So if you look at the book of Malachi really quick with me, we'll go through them. It's a short book, four chapters. Um, so in verse two, chapter one, verse two, it, towards the middle of it, it says, How have you loved us? He says, How have you loved us? Is what the uh Israelites are saying. Then if you jump down to verse eight, uh right before verse seven, beginning of verse seven, it says, How have we despised your name? How have we despised your name? And right below that, in verse 7, it says, How have how have we polluted you? Then if we continue on in verse 2, um sorry, chapter 2, verse 17, he says, how have we worried him? How have we worried him? In chapter 3, verse 6, he says, sorry, verse 7, he says, how shall we return? In verse 8, they say, how have we robbed you? And finally, in chapter 3, verse 13, he says, How have we spoken against you? If I lost you, don't worry. We're going to go through the four chapters, and we're going to get to uh, look at those questions a little closer. Now, when it comes to questions, there's nothing wrong with asking God questions. But there's asking God questions, and then there's questioning God. You see, these things are different. To ask God questions is to inquire of God, to say, God, I know that you're God, and you know more than I do. So I have this question. Can I ask it? Let me ask this question. That's to ask God a question. You see, to question God is a little bit different. To question God is to challenge God. It's to say, I say that you're God, but I don't truly believe in my heart that you're God. And so why are you doing what you're doing in my life or in somebody else's life? Why are you doing what you're doing? I don't trust what you're doing. You see, there's a difference between asking God questions and questioning God. Because the main difference is the intention of the heart. One challenges God and one inquires of God. You see, a, a, a person who challenges God is lacking hope in their heart. A person who asks God questions has that hope in their heart, but is still imperfect, realizes that God is perfect, but we're not. You see, somebody who has no hope does not realize that they're imperfect. And so every time something happens, every time something goes wrong, It's God's fault. God did this. Why did God do this? You see, if somebody with hope says, yes, God did this, but he has a purpose. Yes, God did this, but he is good. Yes, God did this, but he is faithful. You see, when we have this hope of glory within us, that's living within us, What happens is that we see God as perfect and we see ourselves as imperfect. We see our imperfection for what it is. And so tonight, as we're studying Malachi, Malachi ends with a curse. This is the only book of the prophets that we're going to study that ends with a curse. All the other books have some type of uh, uh, restoration, some type of message of hope that something is coming. Don't worry, this is not a book of doom. This is actually a very hopeful book. But the state where the Israelites are in, in Malachi, is not a very good one. You see, after this curse that happens at the end, there's a 400 years of silence that happens from the end of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, and the beginning of the New Testament, which is where the gospels begin, which is Matthew chapter 1. And so what we see here is that who Malachi is speaking to is a post-exilic Judah, the uh, Judah that was basically taken out of their land and scattered. But then we see in Ezra and Nehemiah that at some point, they're called back, the Lord stirs, the Spirit stirs up people's hearts, and they come back, and they rebuild the altar, and then they put a foundation to the temple, and then they rebuild the temple, and then they rebuild the walls. So a lot of scholars believe that Malachi is written in that time, somewhere in that time frame. Some of them say that it's written 100 years after Zechariah was unseen, because Zechariah and Haggai, they're called back to uh, to Jerusalem so that they could encourage encourage the Jewish people there, uh, the remnant to continue to build. Right as people, we have this tendency of starting something, especially men. Where are my men in here? Starting something and it's like, yeah, I'll get I'll get to it later. And a month later, the project's still sitting there. That's my wife. She knows. So, Haggai and Zechariah, and Pastor Brian will go over Zechariah a little more in detail, but they go back and they encourage him to continue, and so they do. So, um, basically, in the book of Malachi, what we see is that 47 of the 55 verses, this is special, 47 of the 55 verses that we have here, God is speaking. God is speaking which is really, really interesting because no other uh, book of prophecy has that. And so what we're going to see is that the um, remnant of Judah, the remnant of Israel, what's happening is that they built the temple, they built the walls. And at some point, they didn't know what else to do. And when you don't know what else to do, you kind of just kick back, right? And relax and begin to build a family and begin to do all this stuff. And so they begin to intermarry and all these things. And little by little, they got to a place where going to the temple, the special thing that they they came specially for was no longer special. The offerings that they gave were no longer from the heart. They were lukewarm. And so if you guys remember in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 11, and if you guys can go with me there, what happens is that um, Jesus speaks through John to this church, this church that was lukewarm. So uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, if you guys are following along, it says, in verse 14 of chapter 3, And to the angel of the church in La- Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. He says, I know your works. So this reminds me of Malachi, and it basically outlines where the israelites are at at this point he said i know your works i know that you built the temple i know that you set the foundations for my temple that was destroyed i know that you built the wall so i know your works i know your zeal he says continuing on you are neither cold nor hot Would that you were would that you were either cold or hot so because you are lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, for you say I am rich, I have prospered and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blinked blind, sorry, and naked, I counsel you to buy for me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, I want to give you sight, but I can't give you sight if you're lukewarm. Then he says, those whom I love, I reproof and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down in my Father with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So we see here that he's talking, speaking to the church of Laodicea, but this basically outlines where the church, or not the church, sorry, where uh, the remnant of Israel are at, those who are left over from, the, from being exiled, who went back to Jerusalem, who were obedient to God. And so they're basically in a place where they're just kind of kicking back, waiting for the next thing to come. And this is where Malachi comes in to the picture. You see, when his chosen people challenge God, God doesn't just destroy them. God doesn't say, did you challenge my authority? I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to take you. You're no longer my chosen people. That's not what happens when his chosen people challenge God. God gets to the heart of it. God gets to the heart of it, and he brings that affirmation that his chosen people need to continue on in his works. And so he speaks directly to the condition and gives purpose in the hope of glory, which is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, as we um, dive into your word, Lord, I pray that We may lay aside any uh, preconceptions of uh, whatever that we come here tonight, Lord. And I pray that any worries, concerns, or anything that's in our mind, Lord, that we may just allow for you to take that and allow us to just dwell and drench ourselves in your word. I pray that as you speak to to the remnant of Israel, Lord, that you may also speak to us, Lord. Speak to us individually because we are all individuals and we're all going through different things, Lord, but you are a God that not only knows his body, his church, but you know our hearts and you know our minds, you know our worries. So Lord, uh, speak to us through your word and allow us to see what you have for us tonight, that your spirit may be the one that gives words tonight to speak. Lord, we thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. So starting in Malachi chapter one, verse one, it says, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. So it's important that we see here that Malachi, the name Malachi means my messenger, means my messenger. And this is so important because by my messenger, it means that he was chosen to take a message. You see, a lot of times we focus on who people are, we focus on who we are, but we forget that what's important is the message. You see, with Malachi, we don't know anything else about Malachi. We don't know what lineage he's from. We don't know where he lived. We don't know anything about Malachi. But he has such an important message to deliver. He has such a heavy message to deliver to Israel, the remnant of Israel. And so... This should be something that encourages us, that it doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter where we come from. It doesn't matter what we've done. When we allow the Lord to work in us and through us, what happens is that His message becomes our message. The gospel becomes intertwined with who we are, and then that is what becomes what's important about us. There's too many of us these days trying to be great preachers, trying to be great servants, trying to be great. You fill in the blank. But what's important about us is not so much what we do or what we are, but rather the message that we carry. And you see, we carry the good news. We carry, that's what gospel means. Gospel means good news, the good news that we And in ourselves have no hope. But in Jesus Christ, we have all the hope that we can ever need. And someday he's going to come back and he's going to take every single one of us who have received them as our Lord and Savior. And he's going to say, come with me to my kingdom. Reign with me. And that's what's important and special about us. That's what's important and special about Malachi that he's God's messenger, and in the same way, we're the same. And continuing on, he says, I have loved you. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? How have you loved us? Take a step back, and let's remember that God chose Israel. God chose Israel, and this is important because I think we could all attest to some extent that our belief, what we believe, affects our behavior. What we believe affects our behavior. If somebody feels like they're being threatened, they're gonna, their behavior is going to be as such. So uh, I grew up in the south side of Chicago, and my parents didn't have a lot of money growing up. And so I grew up in a lot of um, impoverished areas where you shouldn't be out after dark and you shouldn't do all these things because... So we spent a lot of time inside. But in those areas, the belief a lot of times is that that's your life. That that's where you're going to live and that's what you got to live up to. And so what happens a lot of times is that a lot of these kids joined gangs. A lot of these kids joined uh, all these type of crime organizations because that's what they believe is their future. You see, what we believe affects our behavior. And so the nation of Israel had forgotten that God had chosen them, that God, they were the chosen people of God, that it was nothing that they did. As a matter of fact, if we were to choose, if we were to look at, look at Israel's history, I think we can all agree and say, why did God choose them? Yeah, why did God choose them? But at the same time, why did God choose us? Every single one of us, me. Why did God choose me? I don't know. And so continuing on, he reminds them this. And he says in verse, continuing verse 2, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? Declared the Lord. Now, if you guys remember Esau, Esau was Jacob's brother, and they were both twins, but Esau was the older one. And so, what Esau ends up doing is even though he's a, so in that culture, if you were the firstborn, you receive the inheritance of, uh, of the family. And so, Esau, they grow in everything, and Esau's supposed to receive the inheritance, but he gives it to his froth- brother for a bowl of lentil soup because he was hungry. But he didn't value it. And so anyway, that's Esau. Let's continue on. He says, um, yet I have loved Jacob Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A lot of, I know a lot of you guys are probably thinking, why does it say that he would hate Esau? Like we just read all that, but that's what stands out a lot of times, right? That he hated Esau, but why? Honestly, I can't explain it. I could give you guys some ideas and things that I've read, but why God, God does what he does I'm, i i don 't know when we, we're not going to know um, all we can do is look and basically make our best interpretation of what he's saying. And so some ideas, I'll give you some ideas of, as I was researching and studying for this, um, How some, what some people think. So when he says that he hated Esau, a lot of people think when he's making comparison between people, the word that is used for this is not that he hated him, but rather that he loved him less, that he loved them less. And so it's not that he hated Esau and loved Jacob, um, but rather, it's that he loved them less. So that's one of the points of views. Some other people will say, some other scholars will say that he did hate uh, Esau, but in the, in the way that Esau had a heart of contention towards God. I mean, he doesn't value his birthright. He doesn't value the fact that God gave him the, the, the title of firstborn. And so then if you follow the Edomites, and as we've been going through the book of the prophets and all these things, we see that the Edomites are cursed, right? The Edomites are doing horrible things, and they, be, they, they receive judgment. So a lot of scholars say, well, God knew ahead of time what everything that they were going to do, and because they knew, he knew what everything they were going to do and who they were going to be, he said, I won't choose them. But when it comes down to it, when it comes down to it, we don't really know why God chose Jacob over Esau. Because I think a lot of times we look at that, oh, they're bad, they're this, they did this, that's Edomites and Esau, and he sold, well, he deserved it, right? Some of us will say that. But what we don't really ask ourselves is, why did he choose Jacob? Like, just the name alone, Jacob means deceiver. And let me tell you, if you guys know the history of Israel, you guys know that Jacob lived up to his name, he was a deceiver. I mean, he stole the birthright from his brother. And that's just the beginning of it. so many other things. And so the question is, why did he choose Jacob to be one of the uh, forefathers and descendants of the nation of Israel, his chosen nation? You see, we do that a lot of times with as human beings. We do that a lot of times as human beings. We, if we think of something at like 100%, right? For the most part, a lot of times we're going to like things, about 80% of things we're going to like in something, and about 20% we're going to dislike, right? But a lot of times, or for the most part, we focus so much on that 20% of dislike and completely forget about the 80%. We completely forget that we like 80% of X thing that you can think of. Right? If you're married, it could be your wife or whatever it may be. Right? It's just an example. I like my wife. I love my wife 100%. And I like 100%. Right? Don't get me in trouble, guys. I have to go home with my wife. <laughs> I'm going to go out there and the going to be gone. <laughs> Hard to walk up here. But right, that, that, that's the case. So Israel is challenging God. It's like, when have you loved us? He says, I loved you. I chose you. You had nothing to offer, but I picked you up, picked you up and made you mine, gave you a name, gave you a nation. If you think about it, they were slaves, they were nobodies. But God took them, He made them a powerful nation. But they disobeyed. And so continuing on. Continuing on in verse 6, he says, A son honors, honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts, O priest, who despised my name? But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar? But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that, that to your governor. Will he accept or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So what he's basically saying is you give me offering but that offering is not the best of what you have what you give me is not the best of what you have you bring the lame you bring the sick and he even goes as far as saying if you had to give you you had to give that to your governor would he accept it would you even dare give that to your governor or are you just giving it to me because you think i don't see you see he's Going straight for the heart, the problem of the heart. And so continuing on... He says in verse nine, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations and in every place incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations says the lord of hosts but you you profane it when you say that the lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food may be despised but you say what a weariness this is and you snort at it says the lord of hosts you bring that what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick and this you bring as your offering Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and bows and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. You see, they were giving offering that were blemished. They were giving offerings that were less than what God had expected them to give but notice this. He doesn't indict them because of lack, because they don't have enough. The reason why he's saying what he's saying is because God has given them an abundance. And out of that abundance, what they do is they hold on to it like they themselves have produced it, like they themselves have uh, created it. So he's not so much saying this because they're lacking or because they don't have enough to give, but rather because they have so much to give, but they choose to hold on to it. You see, they forget or they forgot who the giver is they think they provide for themselves you know there's no hope in their heart to say yeah i have been given this and if i give this much then the lord's gonna provide for the rest and this can be so comparable to us we can put ourselves in this situation because how many times do we go home tired from work And either we're, uh, the Lord puts something in our heart, puts something to talk to somebody in our heart about Him to give Him a word of encouragement, and we don't because, no, not today, I'm too tired. Now, mind you, we have the option to choose that. We have the option to choose that. But when the Spirit of the Lord moves in us and, and He says, go deliver this message for me, How many of us say, yes, I'm going to go? How many of us take the time to spend with the Lord, to read his word, what keeps us full and what keeps us full of power? You see, our lives are supposed to be an overflow of the spirit of God, an overflow of the spirit of God. When God calls us, when God chooses us, He doesn't just say, you're all going to be ministers. You don't have to work and just focus on ministry. I don't believe that's what the Bible says. You see, He has chosen us, and if we truly believe that He's chosen us, we can truly believe that He's placed us where we're at today. I'm not just talking about right now. I'm talking about our jobs I'm talking about at wherever we volunteer, in whatever family we have. You see, me and my wife, we're from Chicago, so we don't have family out here. But we have you as our family. And so we know that the Lord has placed us here because you guys are our family. Our, our, our um, physical family, I guess, our, our, yeah, our biological family, they're in Chicago. Um, but the Lord has a purpose in that, and I know that if the Lord called us to California, sunny California, right? the mountain's cold <laughs> yeah, we were excited when we realized that we weren't going to be by the beach. My love wife my, lo- my wife loves the beach. and so but even in that, the Lord has called us here, and, and, and we truly believe that the Lord has a purpose that the Lord is good and that he has a purpose for us. And what we have to do is just give it all we have. I'm not saying that it's up to us, but I'm saying that we find our strength in him when we don't have strength. And so he continues on and he continues on speaking to the Israelites. And he goes to remind them that he has called them priests that he has called them priests. So in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And now a priest's command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So, this kind of goes just back to um, when I first read it, I was like, wait, why is he just going to spread dung on their faces, right? But uh, this kind of just goes back to uh, where he's talking about like they're giving, they're basically saying that giving to the Lord is in vain and and he and he and he's saying you're just giving in vain you're you're just giving to give you're being religious and you're not doing it from the heart and so what used to happen when they gave the sacrifice of the animal, the uh, excrement was, that was still in them. Like the all the waste and everything was still in them. And so what he's saying by all this is that well, he's going to put it on their faces so that they will just leave and stop being hypocrites. So they would just leave the temple and stop pretending like they're actually giving an offering to the Lord. See, he's addressing their hypocrisy. It's like, don't say that this is an offering towards, towards me from the heart when it's not, because that's what they were doing. They were just offering to offer, but they weren't really doing it from the heart. So continuing on, he says, he says in verse four, sorry, I lost my place. Verse three, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared them he feared them to him. It was a co- sorry. I read it again. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in all my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. So basically, what he's talking about is that he's calling them priests. He's saying, remember what I called you to. And he brings back the covenant with the Levites. So I don't know if you guys remember, but in Exodus, when uh, Moses comes down and they're worshiping the calf and uh, basically Moses calls, who's going who's gonna to stand up against this that's happening because they were worshiping an idol. The only ones that stood up to that were the Levites. They said, we are. We're going to stand up. And what, ha, what, what the Bible says is that they unsheathed their, their swords and that they killed those who had been worshiping the calf. And so basically what that comes back to is that the Lord made a covenant with them that he would take care of them. And so he talks about the Levite and he talks about what a priest should be. And so if we go back just a little bit, he says in verse 3, Sorry, not three six. He says, "Uh, True instruction was in his mouth. So the word of God was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. And so he's saying, That not only was the word of God in his mouth and did they walk in the way that God had called them to walk in that fear. But that also they proclaimed the goodness of God to others. They proclaimed the goodness of God to others. And so he's talking to these priests because they're no longer doing that. They're no longer honoring God. They're just showing up to the temple to take the sacrifices, and it's like an assembly line. Just bring your offering. Let me chop it up or whatever. And so, in the same way, the Lord calls us to be holy priests. He calls us a holy nation. If you go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, this is what he says: He talks about us as a holy nation. So 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 9. He says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. So he calls us priests, a holy nation. Why? Because we proclaim his goodness. That's what the priests were supposed to do. The priests were responsible to guide and usher the people of Israel into a place where they would proclaim, be cleansed through, through, the, through the offering of a sacrifice and, 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 and proclaim, the people would proclaim his goodness. And so if we continue on, if we continue on, he talks about the priest at hand. He says, But you have turned us but you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abase before all the people. Inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. And continuing on verse 10, he says, Have we not all one father, has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judas has been faithless, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob and descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts, so the um the name Judah means praise, and so here where he says that Judah has profaned says he what he 's trying to say is that the hypocrisy of the priests, the hypocrisy of the nation of Israel has been so much that the, even the praise has been profaned. Even the praise that goes up to God is no longer one of worship, but rather one of profanity. And so in verse 13, he says, in this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness, um, because the Lord was witness between you And the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion, your wife, by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garment with violence. So what we see here is that he's talking about marriage. And so what ends up, happen- what ended up happening with Israel is that when they came back to the land and they were working and building the temple and everything, um, they, they were busy. So they were engaged. But once all that work stopped, what ends up happening is that they end up intermarrying with other nations. Now, when the Bible speaks about uh, them intermarrying and them being judged for intermarrying, it doesn't have anything to do with race or color or anything of that. Really what it really talks about is, is intermarrying with other faiths. So one of the biggest examples is um, King Solomon. King Solomon was one of the wisest Kings. The Bible says, but even in his wisdom, what he does is that he marries all these different wives. I think uh, the last time I I looked at and and researched a little bit, it was like 2,000 wives or something like that. That's a lot of wives. That's a lot of wives. How do you take care of 2,000 wives? I guess you have to have that wisdom. But, But basically... Um, what happens is because he does marry uh, so many uh, women from other countries who worshiped other gods, he begins to worship. He begins to worship those gods. He begins to worship other gods. And then what we see from after Solomon, uh, his son is the one who uh, is the cause for the split of Israel into the northern kingdom and then Judah. And so from there on, basically, Israel has all these different, all this history of, um, not, uh, of not worshiping the Lord, but having idols. And little by little, it deteriorates. So eventually what we see is that they have idols in the temple next to God. You know, that, that was supposed to be the presence of God. But what they do is that they allow other idols to be placed, and they worship and they sacrifice to these idols other idols to the point that um, one of the kings, Manasseh, who was an evil king and ends up repenting at the end and, and, and giving his life to God. He um, sacrifices to one of the gods, but the way that you would sacrifice to that God is that you would put your child, your baby into his hands as a statue. And they would. and he was extremely hot. So it was burning fire, on this steel statue and they would sacrifice their kids. And so they get judged for that. And so that's what it comes to. And then in 586 BC, what happens is that the temple is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. And so what we see with uh, in, in around this time in the 400 BC is that they're rebuilding that temple. And so we see this cycle that happens with them. But basically what we see is that they allow all the things into what only the presence of God should have. And you see, the reason why it's so important that we're in the presence of God, because as we're in the presence of God, we're being changed and transformed to be more and more like Him. If we're not in the presence of God, if we're allowing all these things into our lives that take that place that God should have, then we're no longer... In that presence, and we're no longer being cleansed and purified. We're no longer being challenged. We become desensitized to the presence of God, and we allow these things into our lives that would no longer bother us. That no longer bother us. And you see, with the people of Israel, that's exactly what had happened. They were kicking back, they were the lukewarm. Uh, remnants, I guess you would say, not the church because it wasn't a church yet. And because they were lukewarm, they were just okay with everything. And then right became wrong and wrong became right. They couldn't tell which one was which. But what we see is that without His presence, we're not being challenged. We're not being purified, if you're not feeling convicted by the Spirit of God, then you need to get back into it. I need to get back into it if I'm not being convicted by the Spirit of God, because that means that that presence is slowly fading. We have to take a step back and say, where in our lives, what area in our lives do we need to, do we need to the presence of God more? And mind you, I truly believe that God is omnipresent, but God decides he chooses where his presence dwells more than others. We see the tabernacle, the temple. He says, I don't dwell in temples. But he still allows his presence to dwell there or focus there. Um, So what he's going to bring up next is that, yes, we're perfected through his presence, but there needs to be this purification process that happens that comes by surrender or through surrender. So continuing... In verse 17, well, I guess we didn't finish verse 16. My Bible just flips over. So verse 16 says, the Lord of hosts, so guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. He calls them to be faithful, to be faithful to seeking him in his presence. In verse 17, he says, you have worried the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we worried him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and delights in them. Or by asking we're the God of justice. So he's, they're challenging him with this question. Are you really the God of justice? And continuing on, he says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord in the days of old and, and as in former, former years. Then I will draw near you for judgment. So notice that he calls us, those who are chosen, gold and silver. And I don't know about you guys, but if you guys were walking down one of these roads and you guys found a brick of gold, it doesn't matter what it was covered in, you would pick it up, right? You would pick it up. I know I would. I mean, the right thing would probably be to take it to the sheriff's office and figure out whose it is, right? Um, But you would pick it up. And so he says, you are like gold to me. Each and every one of us are like gold to him. We're like silver and gold. And that's important because he's not just going to uh, destroy us, but rather... He's going to take us and clean us and and purify us and make us shine again. But he says he'll draw near for judgment. And so in verse 5, he says, And I will draw near for judgment. I will be swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress a hard worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, Against those who tr- thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. So, what he's saying is that when he draws near, when his presence is present, I guess, what happens is that all impurities begin to come to the surface. I don't know if you, if you guys notice this, but when you feel like you're closest to the Lord, that's when you feel all these impurities come up. That's when you feel all these attitudes and feelings that you're like, whoa. Like, I thought I was so near to the Lord. How come I'm feeling anger? How come I'm feeling bitterness? How come I'm feeling all these things? Why? Because as the Lord draws near to us, because we're not perfect yet, what happens is that all these impurities begin to be worked out of us. You see, when we get into God's word and we take it serious and we begin to seek him with all our heart, what happens is that he does draw near. But guess what? When we look in a mirror face-to-face with Him, we're going to see how imperfect we are. We're going to see that we're not like Him. But Second Corinthians 3.18 says that we are to become like Him just as in a mirror, but by glory. We're to be transformed just like Him, but it's by step-by-step, glory-by-glory. One battle at a time, the war is won, but there's still battles within us that we're to fight. And so in verse 6, from verse 6 to verse uh, 13, basically, or 12 actually, what he begins to talk about is about the um, them bringing the full tithes, basically uh, them robbing him of full tithes. So in, let's just read, uh, verse 8 says, Well, man rob God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? He says, In your tithes and contribution, contribution, you are cursed with curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And so notice that he challenges them as well because he says, you're not giving me your best. You're not giving me your best. You need to surrender in order to get blessing. If you don't surrender, then I can't give you blessing because one of the things they were saying is, how are we robbing you? How can we see the wicked prosper? How can we see those who do evil prosper? But we're not prospering. We don't see ourselves prospering. And what God says he challenges them with this is to bring the full tithe into the storehouse. Into the storehouse is meant as a place where they used to gather the things that was going to supply the temple. That was going to supply uh, the ministry that God had called them to. And there's a lot that we could go into here because uh, there's a lot of belief in uh, Different people believe in a church that a tithe is not biblical according to the new covenant. A tithe is not biblical according to the new covenant. So what they say is that, well, a tithe is is about the Levitical law. And true, Uh, God talked about the tithe in the Levitical law. But more importantly... It was before that. I don't know if you guys remember, but in Genesis chapter 14, Abraham gives a tithe, and that's way before the nation of Israel. That's way before the Levitical law. And so the nation, uh, before the nation of Israel, Abraham gave a tithe in chapter 14 of Genesis to Melchizedek, who is a representation of Jesus who was to come. And then Jesus in the New Testament also talks about it. And we don't have a lot of time to get into that right now. I'm running out of time here. But the main point of this section is that he's saying, You're robbing me because you're not giving me what I'm asking of you. You're not looking at me as the giver and you as a conductor. You see, what we have is not ours. What we have is not ours. Uh, we could call it our car. We could call it our house. We could call it our uh, bank account. We could call it, uh, if you guys have kids, your kids, wife. But there, none of that is yours. At the end of the day, we have what we have because the Lord has given that to us. But when we lack hope in our hearts, we start to close our fists and say, No, like I don't, I don't want to let go of this. I'm going to hold it here because this is all I think I have. So we we begin to put our hopes in that, our hope in that. You see, God says, open up your hand. Realize that everything I can give you, I can take away. And when we do that, he says, I'm going to bless you. So in verse 12, he says, a verse of chapter three says, And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, he says, uh, says the Lord. But you say, How have we spoken against you, have said? It is vain to serve God. What is a prophet of our keeping his charge, or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts, and how we call arrogant blessed. evil, evil doers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and escape. So that's what he's talking about. So he's saying, you're going to be blessed, but you have to surrender what I have given you back to me. You have to trust, not because I need from you, but because when you give to me, I'm going to bless you back. And all the nations are going to call you blessed. You see, when we, when we give to God what he, from what he's given us, what he requires of us, what he wants from us, what happens is He blesses us, but He also leaves an impression on us. He leaves such an impression on us that we want to do it more. I don't know if you guys have had that experience, that God calls you to something and you're like, oh, I don't know, I want to do that. I mean, there was a time when I couldn't even speak in front of people. I remember taking a speech class about a long time ago. <laughs> um, I remember taking a speech class at some point and I couldn't even, I couldn't even speak in front of people. Now, I'm not saying I'm a great speaker, but what I am saying is that when I gave my life to the Lord and he called me out to step out in faith and I did it once, little step, and I did it again and again, the more I did it, the more I saw the blessing of God and the more I was able to prove in me that he is God and he can do amazing things in us and through us. And so he did this with uh, the nation of Israel. In verse 16, he says, And those who fear the Lord spoke with one another. There was those who feared the Lord. Now the word fear here is reverence towards God. The Lord paid attention to hear them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who fear the Lord and esteemed his name. So a book of remembrance was written because of the work that the Lord was doing. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasure procession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve You see, when we experience God's love, we're perfected and all fear is cast out. And so fear, that is a fear of, I don't know if I'm going to have enough. I don't know if I'm going to be enough. I don't know what's going to happen. That fear is turned into, I know who God is, a reverence towards God. I know who God is, and because of that, I'm going to step out in faith. I'm gonna step out in my calling as a chosen child of God. And that's exactly what he's talking about here. Fear that's perfected in love. Responds in faith, responds in obedience. And so to finish up in verse 4, in chapter 4, sorry. This is where we're gonna finish up. <clears throat> he says. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evil doers will stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet, On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, on that day when he acts, on that day when he comes back, he's talking to the nation of Israel, those who fear are going to be the ones that are going to stand with the Savior. Who he's talking about here is Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the name, but he's giving a hope. So yeah, it ends with a curse, but it's really a curse that leads to hope because what the Bible says in the New Testament is That God doesn't, Jesus didn't come, didn't go to condemn, but those who didn't receive Jesus had already condemned themselves. So when he, I say, when when it ends in curse, it's not so much that God curses them like you can never have salvation, but he's giving them a warning of a curse. And so in verse three, where he says, Tread. If you look up this word in the uh, Aramaic Hebrew, what the word tread really means is like stepping on grapes to produce juice, like to produce fruit, wine, what it used to be wine. And so it's when he talks about that, you shall tread down the wicked. It means that when they see the wicked, they're to go after them like the shepherd comes after his sheep. They should go after them in such a way that they produce fruit. And that only takes me back to Matthew chapter 28, where he talks about, go then and make disciples of all the nations. So when he's doing this purifying in Israel, when he's saying, you are my chosen people, he's not only leaving it at that, he's saying, why are you kicking back? Why are you just hanging out? I have a purpose for you. Fulfill that purpose and take every single moment that you have and make use of it. Most importantly, in verse four, he says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. So he says, remember the law. Why? Because the law, nobody can keep the law. And so the law is meant to point us back to God. And he finishes with this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so what we see here is that he ends with this and um biblically, like according to this verse, if we look at Revelation 11, which we're not going to turn to right now, but in Revelation 11, it talks about two witnesses are going to come during the tribulation. And those two witnesses says that there's going to be all these things that are going to happen. They're going to die. But after three days, the Lord is going to lift them up again. People are going to be happy because they died. Why? Because they were preaching the gospel they're sent to preach the gospel one of them is is said to be elijah and the other one moses and so they were preaching the gospel and the gospel convicted people and the people didn't like it so when they die people leave them on the streets and they don't want to bury them but what ends up happening is the spirit of god comes in them again and raises them from the dead and this terrible earthquake happens where a lot of people die Those who were looking at them in contempt, and then people give and pray give praise to God and give their hearts to the Lord. And so that should be an encouragement to us. I know as much as like death there is in there, like they die and they rise and everything. It should be an encouragement to us because we're those chosen people that the God that God calls to send out to those who are lost, those who are walking in wickedness. That's what we're here for. That's our purpose. Go out and make disciples of all nations. We have a purpose. We're chosen. We're priestly nation of God. But we won't walk that out unless our hope is the hope of glory. If, if our hope is in the hope of glory, we're going to be in the same place that the remnant of Israel was at— lukewarm. And we don't want to be in that place when the Lord comes back. We want to be ready, a church ready for His coming. But that starts with the individual. That starts with each and every one of us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, and we.